This podcast is supported by IFC Films, presenting Wildlife. Carrie Mulligan and Jake Gyllenhaal star in actor Paul Dano's directorial debut. Hello, welcome to the Film Comment Podcast special edition known as The Rep Report. So I am pleased again to be joined uh, by uh, two stalwarts of cinema. Nellie Killian, a contributing editor of Film Comment and a board member on Screen Slate and also a programmer here in New York. And uh, John Derringer, the founder of Screen Slate. And uh, I, I should have said, I'm uh, Nick Rapold, the editor-in-chief of Film Comment, and we are here to trip the light fantastic of rep cinema. Uh, what we've seen, what we want to see, what we've missed. I think we can dive into things we've seen over the past weekend in New York uh, and, and maybe elsewhere since I have a surprise in that I, I've, I was seeing movies elsewhere. So, uh, I, I, Nellie, I was very um, curious to hear. I think you've been watching Detour. Oh, yeah. Well, I actually watched Detour um, in anticipation of this podcast because I know it's yes. coming out, uh, a restoration is showing at Film Forum uh, starting, I believe, Friday. Oh, okay, so um, this will be a, a look. It's a look forward, look yes. Forward. yes. Yeah, I mean, it's a movie that I saw when there was an Ulmer series at Anthology, actually, many years ago, that also included a documentary about Ulmer, um, which included a lot of sort of Joe Dante and, like, John Landis, like, walking through, like, smoky cemeteries, like, <laughs> talking about how much they love B-movies. Um, but... He's a director I, I absolutely love, and a movie like Detour is just something that is this, you know, kind of twisted little miracle. The movie is relentlessly dark. Um, I think you've both seen it, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, it's a movie, you know, basically about a man who has a sort of run of bad luck and you know, the sort of wrong man narrative is no sort of, is not exactly an anomaly in the noir genre. But here it's just, it's kind of just all these like low stakes, like bad rolls of the dice. Uh, <laughs> where you just, it's very relatable almost, like the ways in which he just, he wants to go west, but he has no, to meet his girlfriend, but he has no money. And he like gets in this car and uh, hitching west with this guy who, Everything seems a little shady, but truly, I mean, I, I don't think this is exactly a spoiler. I won't go any further with it, but the the man sort of dies accidentally and he makes some bad decisions about how to deal with that fact to avoid uh, getting into trouble and ends up hooking up with Anne Savage, who's, to even call her a femme fatale is like, I mean, everything about the movie is a little bit off. Uh, to say that Anne Savage is a femme fatale in it, she has many of the qualities of a femme fatale, but also she's, there's something a little bit repellent about her because she's like clearly from the first scene, it's not that she's no good, but she just is, uh, seems tired and, <laughs> and like, she's kind of seen too much of life in a way that isn't exactly appealing but, um, I mean, she's a very, you know, she's an incredible performer. So she brings something very dynamic to the role. But it really is like you're, it's just kind of this woman that he gets sort of sucked into. It doesn't, it's not even an attraction. It's just he kind of gets sucked in. As he's been sucked into all of this bad sort of hard luck, 
um, throughout the the film. And it's a movie I've always really liked um, and always thought was just sort of this, like kind of the ultimate noir bummer. I actually once was in a taxi cab with this guy. I was leaving work late one night and I got a cab and he picked me up in front of a movie theater and was listening to um, like a noir. He was listening to like old time radio, oh. uh, like a some sort of like radio show that was doing like a noir. That was playing like a noir radio thing, radio play from the 30s. And I asked at one point, I was like, what, what are we listening to? And he was like, well, don't you know that this like AM band plays the old time radio shows like on Saturday nights. And I was like, I did not know that. And he was like, you like this stuff. And I was like, I mean, I don't really know that much about it, but I'm interested. And he was like, do you work at that theater or whatever? You know, you know, so we start get to talking basically. (laughs) And he was like, so you like old movies? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, you know, there's this movie I saw as a kid and I've never been able to shake it. And it just, Basically, it just kind of like messed with him for his entire life. And he'd like never been able to sort of shake the imagery in it. And he was explaining the plot of the movie to me for the majority of this taxi ride. And at one point I was like, and he was talking about it as like this kind of like lost sort of transmission that it's sort of like, you know, fundamentally like shaken him as a child and he'd never (laughs) forgotten it and he never knew what it was. He never knew if he'd made it up. And I was like, the movie you're describing is Edgar Ulmer's Detour. (laughs) And I was like, you can rent it. It is (laughs) like, I I know what movie it is. And he was like, are you sure? And I was like, yeah, there's yes. There's no question. Everything that you've just described that is Edgar Ulmer's Detour. (laughs) And you should definitely watch it again. And also you're Everything that you're saying that like how it affected you as a child is exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, uh, take your kids to Almer's <laughs> detour this weekend at Film Forum. <laughs> but it does. I mean, it has that quality. I think not only narratively, but it has had this um, maybe even paradoxical status where it's you know a classic, but it's also been sort of marginalized, and I think it's public domain or yeah, I think so yeah. yeah and so I mean when I remember when I first saw it, it was on like a like a nth generation VHS bootleg and then you know you can probably stream it online or like a battered 16 millimeter print um so it's pretty incredible that they've put you know the effort and the resources into restoring it um, and the restoration looks great. Yeah. I, I watched, uh, I mean, I, I didn't see it on screen, but I saw a screener of the restoration and it looked really good. Uh, yeah. And it's funny when, when that happens. I, I mean, I think the hitchhiker, that that was also like a lost right. kind of yeah, public yeah. domain thing that they did. A, it's in the Ida Lupino um, series at Film Forum, which we don't need to go into because there's an entire standalone podcast about it. Um, but Hitchhiker, another, yeah, P- PD film. Thank you, Library of Congress. Yeah. (laughs) So detour, yeah, corrupting influence for the young. Speaking of corrupting influences. Yes. uh, I also (laughs) watched Inquiry Nuts. Oh. (laughs) From from corruption to purifying Yeah, which is a movie I I was unaware of, even though I feel like it's very up my alley in a lot of ways. It's, um, I think it's, uh, it was made by, I'm forgetting their names, but they're two of the founding members of Cartemquin Films in Chicago. Uh, Definitely Quinn. Gordon Quinn. And I forget who the other 
director was. But they um, they had basically as undergraduates at U Chicago, I guess, seen uh, Roosh and Moran's uh, Chronicle of a Summer and basically remade it in Chicago in 1968 with two nuns going around asking um, people if they're happy. So this is a documentary? It's a documentary, like a verite documentary in the style of um, Chronicle of a Summer. But it's, you know, at the height of the Vietnam War and like, you know, these... (sighs) These women going around, you know, talking to all different types of people from like sort of uh, countercultural types to people coming out of uh, a black church to like um, people at a museum about sort of if they're happy. And, you know, which it's funny to me because I feel like it's almost I think in both of those films sort of phrased as like a a simple question, but it's clearly so loaded, you know. And I think also as someone who grew up, I mean, the sort of big difference to me is I think that I'd seen Chronicle of a Summer many, obviously many years ago and, you know, couldn't help but sort of read it quite differently just because of who's asking the question. As someone who grew up going to like Catholic school, like being taught by nuns, I feel like having a nun ask you a question is like very different um, (laughs) dynamic. And, you know, on, on many levels, I mean, I, I don't say that in like a, a way like uh, them as an authority figure. I mean, nuns are also, they're kind of the most approachable people in the sort of authority of the church, mm. but also like they do still do have that authority. Like you can't lie to a nun, but like they're, they're not like scary or at least the ones that uh, I grew up with weren't. Anyways, it's very interesting to have these two like women in their religious garb going up to people and asking them and some people who are clearly Catholic and some people answer with sort of almost religious quasi religious answers, which the nuns sort of push back on Uh others sort of answer more philosophically. Some just answer very sort of pragmatically. It's an incredible movie for the moment because it really does also get at uh, how many people's happiness is being affected by the larger political reality which, I mean, I think is always true, but I don't think it's always something that people can articulate. Like now, people can definitely articulate it, right? right. Yeah. And in 1968, you know, many of the people that they're um, talking to are saying like, well, I'm happy, but um, it weighs on me that so many young men are going and dying in Vietnam. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not happy because of that. Yeah. And like this level at which the, you know, people are like, I am happy except like Johnson. You know, it's just like <laughs> there's this like level at which the political situation is part of so many people's answer to their personal happiness, which is, um, again, something that I think is right. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, your political reality should be part of the way that you I don't know, understand the world. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, again, I think it's something that makes it very relevant to today. Yeah. 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 And I mean, it's almost surprising sometimes how much politics won't enter into into some of the answers. Yeah. I think it's actually, it, it almost like just draws attention to the ways in which like, I mean, I feel like people should have said that during the Bush administration too. Mm. I don't know if they would have mm, to right. the level that now it's so clearly like you kind of can't talk around the political reality because it's so yeah. omnipresent and like every whatever you can't get away from it yeah i mean happy thanksgiving mm. everyone yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah i don't know i mean and also with the, with the movie like that in the, in the 60s 
it's it's interesting just the 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 idea still feeling somewhat novel of asking people in the street questions and and that somehow you have this new magical tool that is giving us access to people in a new way um that being i suppose a some kind of like very portable camera and and sound system. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, it's very man on the street interviews. Like it feels like something that's like very fleet. I, I don't know exactly how they shot it, but yeah. yeah. Is it shot on on film or is it a video? Uh, film sixty eight. Okay, cool. So I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I believe it's a f- national film preservation uh, pick that was restored with funds that it gained from getting that sort of status. Oh, and awesome. it's also, I believe, the 50th anniversary of Kartemquin Films this year. Yes, I think that's right. So and this might be part of that celebration. Yeah, oh, it's part wow. of that celebration at the Museum of the Moving Image. What have you been doing? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess uh, following up on where we left off, uh, I did end up making it to Ghosts of Mars. Oh, yes. This is uh, a, yeah, <laughs> at Metrograph, uh, which was presented by A.S. Hamra, uh, the critic for N Plus One who has a new book out called The Earth Died Streaming, um, which is a really great collection of his uh, cultural commentary. Uh, Four and plus one. And this was an interesting pick. I'm not quite sure why he chose it, but he gave a really, uh, really fascinating introduction. Um, it was almost like a like a stand-up routine or something uh, about the film. But he, he raised some interesting points. Um, I mean, I hadn't seen this movie since it came out on DVD or something like, I don't know, 20 years ago or whatever. And what I don't think I totally appreciated at the time is that it is um, sort of like the total John Carpenter movie. Um, I feel like there should be some kind of fancy German art word for that. But, um, you know, it's not it's I wouldn't say that in terms of of quality certainly but it does encapsulate all his sort of um thematic preoccupations his sort of um uh like you know sort of hoxian riffs and um it's uh you know i think relates back to stuff like assault on precinct 13 where you have these people kind of hold up and you have these um Martian marauder uh, zombies attacking everyone uh, very much has like a thing aspect of paranoia and people on a mission. Um, so it's a it's a really fascinating film. And one thing that Scott brought up in his introduction, um, you know, I think, again, it's like something you would maybe take somewhat with a grain of salt, but he um, characterized it in terms of uh, films coming out around the turn of the millennium that seemed to have some kind of uh, anxiety or at least response to the arrival of digital cinematography. Mm -hmm. And the way that manifests in this movie is that you have these um, evil spirits bouncing from person to person, and it's represented in this uh, lo-fi SD, maybe like mini DV type photography. Uh, whereas the rest of the film is um, almost stubborn in its um, resistance to digital technology. I mean, it has these beautiful, like seeing it in 35 was amazing because it has these beautiful matte paintings, um, you know, beautiful use of old school tricks like perspective. I think it kind of reminds me too of uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula in terms of the way that it's just like, 
pulling out all the stops with these old school techniques um and you know what was then a you know fairly removed um uh from the kind of heyday of that um so it was a really fascinating film and it, it was a ton of fun it, it's, it's not a great movie uh it's very much um I think hampered by its structure, it has this complicated flashback structure and all these mm-hmm. digressions. But yeah, it was a ton of fun. I was just trying to remember the year on that, and I mean, just thinking that I guess a, a film on that scale internalizing still Blair Witch Project stuff to a certain extent. Oh right, yeah, yeah, um, of course. And, yeah. and we know where the the digital is still is, is the source of horror and found footage, and of course, then we'd have nothing but found footage for years <laughs> thereafter. Right. But, yeah. Talking about things that we, picking up the thread from last time and also talking about this sort of uh, materiality of cinema thing, I went and saw that before projection show at Sculpture Center, which I think we touched on last time, which is pretty incredible. It's open for a few more weeks and it's all sculptures, the early days of video art when it was still very tied to the cathoid ray tube and these sort of sculptural ways that um, artists were working with video um, and, but not just with video, but with televisions. And again, it's very much about this sort of material moment of video art as something that is really tied to this box of the television, which is something that, you know, an object that everyone has like a, some sort of connection to, at least in our generation and something that's really disappeared from so much video art. Um, once it became possible to just sort of project it or to um, whatever, restore it in a way that you could present it on a flat screen. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like liberated from its box, but like the <laughs> box is really part of it. Um, yeah. And, much of this work, uh, some of it, it, I mean, there's things like Nam June Pike straight up creating a portrait of Charlotte Mormon made out of TV monitors, like playing <laughs> a cello. Um, there's some that are like just like really playful in that sense. Um, there's one piece by Marine Lucier that's so beautiful of... Um, five or six monitors that are all showing this every day, the sun rising from a window in her apartment, I assume. Um, But she changes the angle slightly so that while she's shooting at the same time each day, the angle, the perspective changes slightly to match the uh, change in the arc of the sun based on the, you know, whatever March of time. Mm -hmm. But because she's shooting each day out the window, these sort of long take video things, the sun is actually um, destroying the camera. Yeah, it's like burning out. It's burning. (laughs) It's burning the tube. So as the days go on and as it it kind of zooms in slightly each day as well, um, this like track of the sun's arc becomes like more and more visible across the uh, video. Uh, there's a bunch of other things that are sort of playing with these like sort of fundamental color properties of the cathode ray tube, red, blue, and green. Uh, this one really monumental piece using like I think 25 screens that's um, sort of investigating the difference in color quality between like PAL and NTSC, mm. um, which again, 
I don't know, like there's something like just really nice about how straightforward it is in the way that they're investigating the properties of this medium. And I think there was so much sort of, and I, I think this is something you could probably talk about too, John, uh, but early video art, there is this level of wanting to kind of demystify video and especially transmission to de- uh, democratize it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that even in these sort of like formal studies, like it does, it, it's, it's not like now where sometimes you like look at something, there's like a whatever wall text from like, you know, continental philosophy, like telling <laughs> you what it means. It's like, there's something very straightforward about what a lot of these people are doing, Yeah, but it's still just like this like incredible sort of material investigation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I think a lot of this work is really accessible and a lot of these artists too were you know outsiders like i don't think video was embraced as fully um as it is today so even you know when you have these major exhibitions like um tv is a creative medium it's not like these kinds of artists were you know welcomed with open arms by the establishment so there is um this outsider spirit to everything and then of course you have the more kind of documentary type people who were, um, you know, like uh, collectives like Video Freaks or TVTV, uh, Rain Dance, um, who were doing like, you know, citizen reporting type stuff. And then um, people who came from like a more, um, let's say like experimental tradition or like examining the properties of the medium. But there are also, you know, places where those overlap, like um, something like Wipe Cycle by uh, Irish Schneider and um, I think Frank Gillette, where you see people being juxtaposed with news footage and stuff. So they're seeing themselves live on camera, being juxtaposed with the news and sort of the, you know, the radical dimensions of, of that. For the most part in this show, it's people who are definitely like working in things that are going to be in a gallery and things that are also like uh, recorded. Mm-hmm. Although some things are found footage. There's like a what mutatas. Oh piece. yeah, internal um, mutatas. Yeah, yeah. credits that, is that the one credits is in yeah. it. Yeah, which is uh, sort of found footage of just like the very like uh, beginning and end of uh, like local broadcasts right, where yeah. they're sort of like doing a direct address to the audience, being like, "Stay tuned. Like coming up tonight <laughs> is the nightly news. If you yeah. want to get an update on that Creating live like chase, a taxonomy. Yeah, of these different yeah kinds of callouts. But interestingly, there's like only one piece in the entire show because I mean, maybe it's like where my interest has where my interest was in this sort of early video stuff that this sort of utopian influence that like we can like make mass media like work for the people <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> like a Gene Youngblood totally yeah. and like video freaks and like these type of things that like this idea that it's like the airwaves are ours. We just have to seize them. Uh, (laughs) uh, Has always been very attractive. Uh, There's actually only one piece in the entire exhibit that relies on the analog signal, which of course is gone. Uh, Oh, like in what? There's a a live broadcast. Yeah. There's a Takeshi uh, Amura piece where it's actually two television monitors that just are the monitors are pushed up against each other. So uh, it's called like conversation or something. It's Mm -hmm. like basically two televisions that are broadcasting only for each other, (laughs) Uh except now it's just static. Yeah. Like in years past, if you had seen it, it would have, 
there would have been a signal coming in that would have been broadcasting live TV. Huh. Like, but yeah, now, yeah. now that piece just broadcasts static. Wow. Which is kind of moving, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Speaking, of, yeah. speaking of ghosts. Yeah, yeah. ghosts of Mars. Yeah, <laughs> yeah ghosts totally. Of, ghosts yeah. of analog. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, I think I was mentioning earlier that um, last night I saw a piece called Variations 5 by Merce Cunningham. Um that was presented as part of the Merce Cunningham Centennial. And so this uh, particular, you know, representation of this piece was done with um, John Cage and Stan Vanderbeek, um, you know, who are part of like the live performance of this. But then this was like a film or maybe it was like a kinescoped video um, that was done for German television. And so it's a it's an interesting piece because the the choreography is kind of an assemblage of different um, pieces that Morris Cunningham had done, and then there are these antenna on the stage that are responding to the movement of the dancers. Um, I don't know if they had like a sensor on them, or maybe it's like the kind of electromagnetic fields of the bodies being picked up by the antenna. And so then that's feeding into, um, you know, like these this huge bay of um, like reel-to-reel tape machines that people like um, John Cage and uh, I think James Tenney are manipulating. Um, and then there are these screens placed around the back of the stage that have um, video and film and 35 millimeter slide projections. So it creates this whole, like, uh, I guess, intermix of different media um, and, you know, bodies uh, and feedback loops. Um, and so that was that was pretty wild. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like so much of the Merce Cunningham dance films, mm, there is a maybe a stereotype of sort of a documentation of dance being sort of dry and mm-hmm. like you know it's saying you have to see live unless it's whatever you know um but i feel like cunningham's interest in technology like obviously is evidenced by the stage production of like what you're talking about that I mean in his stage shows there'd be this incredible sort of engagement with technology or these aleatory uh ideas about like the way that the music would come in and things like that. He was very invested in techniques for uh, capturing his performances Mm -hmm. and would work with these like really interesting filmmakers. This one, who did you say directed this one? So this was uh, Stan Vanderbeek, who um, for the listeners is um, Experimental filmmaker, I mean, he's kind of, um, I guess the like thumbnail summary uh, would be like an influence on Terry Gilliam in terms of doing these kind of collage animations, but then also moving into early computer animation at Bell Labs. Um, so, you know, he he worked with a wide range of technology and formal approaches. And then He's also kind of known for um, this movie drone that he built in upstate, like this yeah. giant, like right. expanded cinema Which dome. Which was at and so this is very much a, like whatever yeah. a, a version of it was at New Museum a few years ago. Oh right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
And so this is very much um, along the lines of that. It's like this whole like live collage of different kinds of media. And they're even bringing video into it, like video synthesis that's responding to the electronic music. But then there's also, um, you know, 35 millimeter and 16 millimeter film. It's like this whole range of, mm. <laughs> it's kind of a lot. Well, we, uh, I guess we're getting toward the, part of the program where we talk about what's coming up. Well, the one thing that the one thing I, I saw last week that I wanted to just shout out, I don't need to say anything about it, is I, I saw some of the Bill Duke movies at Metrograph, which were so amazing. Uh, Deep Cover, like, blew my mind. Um, and I, I hadn't seen any of his directorial works. That's the only other one that I'll shout out quickly the one before moving forward. Before moving forward. <laughs> well, I have to tell my, my favorite Bill Duke. Well, I don't know, not my favorite, but the one that always sticks to my head when I hear Bill Duke is he's in the limey. He's, he's like the I want to say the a DEA where Terrence Stamp is brought brought in and with his fake Cockney concocted accent uh, to s- sit down and, and gives him some weird monologue. And at the end of the thing, end of it, Bill Duke says, "There's one thing I don't understand. The thing I don't understand is every motherfucking word you're saying." <laughs> Which I, I don't know. I just like the absolute. Here's to Bill Duke. Um, well, I mean, coming up, there there are a number of things. I mean, also. That was at Metrograph, right? Yes. Yeah, they, they also have a, a Darius Kanji. I saw the trailer for Evita while <laughs> I was waiting for yeah. the little Duke movie. Um, yeah, a cinematographer we were sort of somewhat um, weighing the merits of before. I'm kind of curious. I mean, I, I mean, I probably won't go see Seven, but I am curious to go see Seven. I mean, I haven't yeah. watched that in forever. The last time I saw it, it had been a really long time since I'd seen it. And I actually remember it being better than I expected. I thought it would be one of those movies I was like totally embarrassed to rewatch. Like, I can't believe I used to like this. But um, <laughs> it's like such cool. a dorm room favorite. I yeah, think people totally. like exactly our age. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think with um, any with any sort of cinematographer thing especially it's like it's hard to sometimes know what was like work for hire and what was like really mm. a collaboration like I feel like I had I've had like a running joke uh with friends about doing a Nick Fist 90s series <laughs> what 90s <laughs> what? spend Nick Fist 90s oh. <laughs> it's like <laughs> It's just like all like rom coms, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I'm really looking forward to the Kristen Petzl uh, series here, which I believe starts next week. Yes, Christian Petzl, right, with a preview um, of his newest film, Transit, which I absolutely love. Yeah, which is coming out in the spring, I believe. Oh, I assumed it was actually coming out with this series, but um, I love Transit. As always, his work is just sort of. Uh, He's dealing with these sort of historical moments that I feel like are so familiar, but then he is able to like transform them in a way and make them so contemporary. I mean, which is, I feel like literally what he's doing with this movie uh, by transposing this World War II novel to contemporary Marseille, but even something like Barbara, which is not like, you know, in taking place in a contemporary moment at all. Like it does... I don't know. It, there's like a closeness to the history that he has that I I think he also, his work with um, Haroon Faraki for so many of these screenplays, who is mm. someone who is so much invested in these ideas of the ways that we're sort of digesting and like sort of re-narrativizing history yeah. probably has a lot to do with the way that he's 
creating these narratives, but um, yeah, his work is incredible, and much of it I haven't seen. I haven't seen the Drebelin movies, which I've heard are so good. I don't mm-hmm. even know that's how, if that's how you pronounce it. Um, yeah, dry, oh, the dry Dryleben. Dryleben, yeah. Dryleben, yeah. I just the way he kind of uh, he 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 just takes for granted the way memory will be overlaid in several layers over given experience that the history is like. Um, History, there's no like history alone. There's only ever history with several layers of different generations of memory there that'll, uh, you know, probably obscure more than they enlighten. But yeah, like what he's doing in Phoenix, which might be the last one, I guess, that was the collaboration with Faroki, but yeah, it's not just blending these sort of historical narratives, but also just like uh, filmic ones that it's this sort of direct, like lined vertigo. Mm-hmm. Um, as well. Yes, I was talking about Phoenix. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was sorry. like, maybe I don't remember Barbara's also about I just, I just, wow. yeah, yeah. I remember a bicycle for Barbara. That's what I remember. Yeah. This is like a total blind spot for me. So it's great. Yeah, I'm looking forward. Yeah. yeah, that's 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 coming up. There's know. a Rita Hayworth thing at oh, yeah, um, yeah. Film Forum. There's a number of things I kind of want to mm-hmm. see in that. I don't know how much longer the Claude Landsman thing is going at the Quan. Oh, I, I thought maybe that was... That might was, be wrapping up. might be over. Although in the same breath, we might as well also mention Wang Bing, who, oh, who had yeah. kind of had who kind of had a takeover <laughs> for a weekend. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, showing uh, here at the Film Society and, and at Metrograph on the occasion of, uh, I guess, Dead Souls. But, but he was also and, also at Momi, MoMA, and Asia Society. Wow. Oh he had God. he was at, apparently at five venues in one day. Wow. Jeez. <laughs> that has to be a record. Sometimes I, yeah. I try to I wonder if I can like um do like a repertory odyssey and hit yeah. all five boroughs well, in one day. But I will say the advent impressive. the advent of DCP really changed it mm-hmm. because I mean it's different with someone like Wang Bing, of course, because I'm I'm doubt that there's countless DCPs, but it used to be like you kind of had to get in there first and like reserve the print, right? Because you're going to be the like right, ma- yeah. however many prints there are. Hmm. But then things started showing up in DCP, and then it's just like an infinitely reproducible hard drive, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. And I remember the first year I really realized things were changing. Um, I believe six venues were all showing Jaws on Fourth of July, (laughs) and none of us even knew the others were doing it. Like we'd all just been like, "This will be fine." Like you know, like it's like (laughs) this is a good moneymaker for Fourth of July. (laughs) And then it was like everyone was had the same thought, and no one told us that everyone had the same thought in the same day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tricky, tricky rights holders. Um, they used to have to tell you because there's only one print, so they had to tell you you can't have it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, just I, I, I guess many people know who who Wong Bing is, but I mean, he had probably the longest film at Cannes um, this this past uh, May. I mean, definitely this year, um, Dead Souls, which is uh, about these uh, in, internment camps uh, they had for uh, political. Well. Uh, People on the wrong side of, of politics, <laughs> uh, imprisoned and enslaved um, opponents, or, or not even opponents necessarily of the regime in uh, in China, and it's just talking about survivors of talking with survivors of these 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 camps um, for many hours, and it's it kind of you know I, I mentioned it because of Landsman because it kind of lays this monument across across time in the same way. 
Um, but there was something even longer that showed here at the Film Society that I'm, I'm not so familiar with. It was... Was it called like 19 Hours or something? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which, yeah, sort of begins to sound like one of the movies at the end of at the appendix in the Infinite Chest. But uh, <laughs> one thing, aside from uh, doing his own movies, uh, he introduced this film Old Men by Lena Yang at um, Metrograph, mm-hmm. which is like a ethnographic portrait of um, elderly men in China, like many of them like talking about sort of like their experiences. Mm-hmm. You know, in that history, it was made in the 90s. So men who had been living since like the 1920s in China and like sort of experienced these like sort of vast changes. He introduced that and sort of um, her as this woman who'd been sort of influential to him um, as well as, you know, a colleague. And her films had a retrospective along with another independent Chinese director at Metrograph, but are pretty much unknown, it seems, in the United States. Like, I feel like so many people were like, I don't know where to start. You know, it's, I feel like often when someone has a retrospective, it's like, you at least like someone like kind of steps up and is like, of course, so-and-so. And like, <laughs> yeah. this was one where everyone was sort of like, uh, um, but yeah, incredible, incredible work. Wow. Yeah. I'm looking forward to, uh, an event on, I think December, 11th, uh, when Dean Hurley, who is David Lynch's uh, sound designer, is going to be in town. So, you know, he's worked with David, I think, for like um, maybe a dozen years, give or take, and did the sound for The Return, uh, obviously in collaboration with David Lynch. Um, Yeah, I think it'll be really remarkable to hear him talk about his work. Uh, So he's going to be at uh, Film Noir Cinema in Greenpoint, which is, I think, a (laughs) former mortuary, if I'm not mistaken, Mm. uh, that's been, you know, converted into a micro cinema and is being presented. It's part of a program called uh, the Miskatonic University for Horror uh, or something uh, similar to that effect. Uh, And they do really cool workshops and stuff. So yeah, I think it should be like a really interesting uh, kind of intimate conversation, just sort of like geeking out about sound. And of course, like the return is so rich and incredible. It's like, I think it's probably the only work of art that has like a Twitter account devoted to its sound design. You know, it has the whole like caption, like the closed captions of the sound effects have their own like uh, Twitter bot account, uh, which is pretty cool. Um so yeah, I'm looking forward to that. That sounds terrific. I'm 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 looking forward to uh, Wanda and other and some short films by uh, Barbara Loden that they're showing at BAM. I guess I don't know. We we've had another we've had a whole podcast devoted to Wanda, so I'm not sure I need to sing its praises even further. But one of my absolute favorites. So there there is that. Um, and then I realized I didn't. I didn't actually talk about what what I had had, had seen um, when I was hinting darkly at not seeing movies in New York uh, for obscure reasons. But I was it was because I was at a festival, a documentary festival in, in Amsterdam called IDFA, um, and uh, something I saw there uh, was by Victor Kosakowski, who is a pretty uh, I would say mischievous um, Russian documentary filmmaker, and this. He's, I don't know, he started, I guess he was first known for the Belovs, which is this portrait of like a family. Uh, and this 
This is a feature he made a few years after that called Wednesday, July 19th, 1961. And that's his birthday. So I guess he's one person whose birthday people don't forget if they know the movie. But it's he. what he did is he went around finding people in his hometown of St. Petersburg who had the same birthday. I mean, the whole process took a, a few years to track down all of these people. Um, and of course, it's completely random. He doesn't claim that they have anything in common. Um, some of them are happy. There's like a really nice grade school teacher who just seems delightful and very amused that anyone's talking to her. Um, and then there's like a couple... Um, you know, one, one, the woman is pregnant, uh, the man it's revealed is like a recovering addict and, and they're not sure if, if, uh, you know, what, what's going to happen to their baby. This is like, it's, this is 1995. So like just a few years after the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, and so everyone is kind of being invited to be reflective in a way that, uh, maybe they hadn't been able to, or felt free to, or had the occasion to before. Um, so, uh, it's, it's it's just a movie that sounds like it 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 shouldn't work or sounds like it would be whimsical, um, but he has this real. He just has this kind of jagged, um, editing style where he puts together fragments of all of these encounters as he's tooling around St. Petersburg, um, sometimes undermining what people say and, um, yeah, it's it's quite an experience. But yeah, he's interesting. He has a new Kosakovsky has a new movie called Aquarella that uh, premiered in Venice, uh, which is kind of like a death by ice. I mean, it's, it's, it's all about the, like, it's, I think it was, it was also shot in, in Russia and it starts out with all these scenes of like more or less people just falling into the ice of a lake. So there's definitely a strain of like Russian, I don't know what you want to call it, fatalism or masochism <laughs> to it running throughout um, what he does. Uh, so that's definitely, also that's all set to like various forms of thrash metal um, oh, aquarella um, <laughs> and it was shot in like an ultra high frame rate so that you can see individual droplets of water he says oh, instead wow. of streaks anyway so <laughs> that's my tangent i don't know is there any any other movies or should we come oh, up well one other gallery yeah. thing that i've heard is quite good just looking at uh Light Industry, which we hadn't brought up, they're showing a Boris Barnett movie that uh, A.S. Hamra is introducing on the 11th. Oh, uh, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, by the Bluest of Scenes, uh, a film I've seen, which is incredible. I saw that at BAM, I think, like 15 Oh, my God. Ago. A really long time ago. Yeah. Yes. Uh, during <laughs> the Barnett series. Yeah. Beautiful film. And um, it is uh, being introduced by Scott, uh, which might be worth checking out on December 11th. And then also, Marion Goodman Gallery is showing um, Amar Kanwar's Such a Morning, which I have not had a chance to see yet, but it is, it's the rare gallery thing that where they actually have showtimes on the website, so you can actually uh, see it from start to finish, which um, seems important because it is something that has shown, it's a single channel video that also has shown a theatrical context, including here at Art of the Real in April. Um, so if you check their schedule, I think it's showing through the uh, December 21st. It's supposed mm -hmm. to be beautiful, um, and I'm looking forward to catching up with it, hopefully in the next week or two. That brings us to, I think we've, we've, talk, <laughs> we've talked a lot, but there's just a lot to talk about. Yeah. It is, after all, a golden age. Yes, we didn't even yeah. talk about Warhol at the Whitney. Oh, oh wow. Yeah. yeah, well, next time. Yeah, next time. Yeah. That's up for months. Yeah. yeah. Warhol next time. Well, that brings us to the end of our latest rep report. Thank you for listening. And um, thank you to Nelly and John. 
Thanks, Nick. Yeah, thanks for having us. This podcast is supported by IFC Films, presenting Wildlife. Carrie Mulligan and Jake Gyllenhaal star in actor Paul Dano's directorial debut, based on the novel by Richard Ford. USA Today raves Wildlife is exquisite, with Mulligan giving an awards-worthy performance that crackles and flares. And we're back uh, for the new release portion of the Rep Report. Uh, And for this portion, uh, I'm going to be joined by... I'm Maddie Whittle. I'm uh, the programming assistant at Film Society of Lincoln Center. And I I thought it might be interesting to get someone who works in programming for a living to weigh in on on new releases, since it's usually just us critics nattering. Although, of course, Maddie has also written for uh, Film Comments, so she's, of course, also a critic and a translator. Uh, She most recently wrote about... John Rue. And that's in our current issue. Um, and uh, she wrote a review of eighth grade, which I hope people kind of come around to as, as the end of the year lists are being busily made now. Um, but right now we're going to talk about some new releases. Specifically, I thought we could talk about uh, the favorite, Yorgos Lanthimos, which was in the New York Film Festival and um, now is making the rounds and soon we'll be making the awards rounds. Um, so, so what did you think of it? It's a favorite of mine. Uh, I, you know, it was this year's opening night selection for uh, NYFF, which was a bit of a departure. And I think from a lot of the conversations that I had, uh, people were really excited by. Yorgos Lanthimos, I think, is a bit weirder than many of the directors we've gone with in the past for opening night. And this was a film that I think a lot of people were eagerly anticipating, didn't know what to expect. And it's a it's a, a very singular film. It's a period drama that's also a comedy, that's also a queer love story, that's also a sort of an intricate depiction of an interpersonal power struggle. And brilliantly acted, I thought Olivia Coleman gave one of the performances of the decade. Yeah, um, I really agree. Yeah. I mean you summed it up everything about the film i mean yeah olivia coleman i found so remarkable i mean like many people maybe i know her from peep show mm-hmm. um and i've always found her really hilarious and i guess i liked her in, in tyrannosaur although i mean i can't claim that that's always leapt to mind but i did see the movie and like it although it's a hard movie to like bear hug but in in this movie it's it's uh in the favorite uh I, yeah i just found she was extraordinary at getting like the, the childlikeness yes. of, of this character uh, the queen and but at the same time the sort of world weariness of yeah. somebody who's just gone through so much suffering and yeah. somewhat come out the other end and just sort of making the most of her lot which is to be the queen of england yeah. but to have um lost a number of children and yeah um it, she's i think it's just I've never seen a performance like it. And, yeah. uh, and, and I think she almost rescues this, maybe the screenplay from, uh, I don't want to say like belittling her character, but turning it into too much of a freak show, you know, yeah. I mean, with, you know, with all the bunnies and whatnot and, and, and the, and the put downs being flung back and forth. Um, she's, yeah, she still manages to kind of hold up, hold up her head to the very last shot. And um, it's, which is kind of remarkable because Yorgos Lanthimos not a guy who's kind of, you know, known for necessarily really. I mean, I guess you could say in something like The Lobster, but again, I feel like that a lot of that's um, the actor is somehow wresting it from his just tendency. I guess it's too easy to say misanthropy, but uh, yeah. there's something about him where it, he's 
very much feel like there's a butterfly board kind of. Yeah, his films can be very sterile and yeah. butterfly board is a good way of putting it because it's sort of like his characters are pinned behind glass for your examination. And yeah. I think comparing Olivia Coleman's character in The Lobster or her performance rather with her performance in The Favorite is really revealing because yeah. she's the the range that she demonstrates between those characters sort of puts on display the range that Lanthimos yeah. and his storytelling mode is capable of. Yeah. And I guess he has different, uh, it's not his screenplay this time, so it's not even um, just him. But I mean, he does these very distancing, potentially distancing things with the fisheye lens, mm -hmm. which I was kind of fascinated how that worked in this movie because it's it's kind of like a throwback way to show off. Yes. Um, but but in a way, the fact that that it's almost like a has such retro associations fits with the fact that it is a period piece. So right. it's like if they had invented cameras, or then maybe that's how they would shoot. Maybe that's a bit of my own flight of fancy, but it somehow seemed appropriate. So I was not bothered by it, but it, it can kind of warp. It does warp people, literally. And it seemed sort of of a piece with the psyches That's of true. the characters, yeah. especially yeah. the queen. Yeah. We don't have too, too much sympathy for the queen because she is still the queen. But uh, uh, And then uh, uh, Rachel Wise, I thought, is, is, I mean, frankly, the most appealing performance from from her that I've seen in a while. And, and by her own account, I was just reading, I don't know, a profile somewhere where, where she also felt like she, you know, brought something forth that she hadn't seen in her own work mm. before, which I thought was kind of interesting because there was a certain amount of press about the weird exercises yeah. that, that Lanthimos made them do, which seemed to have been effective. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, whatever weird Lanthimosian experiments he inflicted on on his own his own actors. I mean, I interviewed him once and, and I asked him like. Uh, is there an element of like theater games in what you do, like acting games in what you do? And he didn't really want to admit that, but it definitely sounds like that's a little how he how he goes about. It. And he directs, has directed theater, and I guess sort of comes out a bit of the theater scene in Greece. I want to say years ago. And that I mean that really does come across yeah. in this film in particular. That it's very yeah. in in some ways it's reminiscent of 18th century French farces and you know, mm, that mm -hmm. that sort of sense of humor. And the way it's staged evokes that. And really, in that sense, Rachel Weisz is the straight man and she does it beautifully. And she does it yeah. in a way that is not at odds with the humor, but contributes to the humor and, and is really organically tied into the humor. Yeah, yeah. And Emma Stone, I, I guess, solid. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's kind of like a certain amount of like thanklessness in that role just being because there's kind of more of a prescribed track that she's going to be going through. Well, that's the favorite. Yeah. There's nothing else to be said about the favorite. <laughs> we said it all. That's right. So what else? Uh, Roma, uh, I guess, is getting a limited theatrical release uh, and starting with some theaters in New York. Um, although some people have complained that, you know, a hard film, it's going to be a hard film to see in theaters. I don't know. I guess in, in New York you could see it or you could have seen it in the New York Film Festival. And this is a film I, um, that was premiered at Venice um, and I guess notoriously wasn't shown at, at Cannes. Yeah, because of the whole Netflix situation. Yes, the Netflix situation, um, which kind of sounds like the name of like a <laughs> Robert Ludlum novel or something <laughs> from the 90s, the Netflix conundrum, um, the Parthenon pathogen. Um, so what did you think of Roma? It's a beautiful film, and uh, it was another of the highlighted films in NYFF this year. It was a centerpiece selection. 
Um, and it was a real privilege to get to see it on the very big screen with a packed house. Um, it's a film that rewards the theatrical viewing experience. And I can understand uh, the critiques of those who say that the fact that it's getting a release on Netflix and a very limited release in theaters is uh, a disservice to the film because it's a, it is a gorgeous film to look at. Yeah. And the cinematography and production design, I think, are really central to what makes the film work. And uh, I, I can appreciate the argument that those are most appreciated in a theater. That being said, uh, if you have access to Netflix and can watch it even in from the comfort of your home, yeah. it will still pack a punch. It's a, it's a very moving film and beautifully acted. And, um, yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I know what you mean. I mean, I, I guess I think it was Manola Dargis, uh, it's called a masterpiece. So the, the M word has been thrown around and I mean, it is, it is so finely detailed and, and just, with the kind of detail sometimes you can only get with like recreation which is clearly he's like you know somehow like transcribing from his memories as, as perfectly as he can um interpreting them um so yeah big screen definitely helps and and i guess atmos sound or is that was it shown in atmos sound uh not in, at nyff, NYFF. Uh, due to technical constraints but um i believe that they are yeah requiring that for most of its theatrical venues yeah um I, yeah i mean that's been sort of something that's interesting to me this this uh the like you know big name auteur's interest in like having a, a certain type of technology and sometimes i wonder if that's almost like a, a leverage point or something you know it's i don't know it's and, and also it's it comes embedded with its own type of publicity i guess yes um, it's it's a point of conversation that yeah gets yeah you know, it, it's an added vector of buzz. Yes, an added vector of of buzz. I'm thinking of a fly just going by. I mean, other critiques for the film, uh, or I guess my critique, but now I just feel so grumpy saying it. But but I just had a certain problem with not the fact that it's a movie, you know, made by a bourgeois filmmaker mm -hmm. about his uh, his nanny growing up and, and so that it's still filtered through his artistic viewpoint and he's mobilizing the millions of dollars. Not exactly that, but more maybe something that's just a tendency of his filmmaking, which is this kind of bravura showcase feel, yes. which for me crops up at a lot of times in the film um, in a way that I found rather than like making the intimate grand or, or pulling us into the intimate was distracting and I guess the obvious one is this, the massacre, mm -hmm. which isn't supposed to be intimate. But, you know, when there is the the uh, the, the um, student, the, the, the protests that are violently being quashed, it's first of all, like it's I guess I have to hand it to him to try to even include that in a movie that that he wants to have such a complete feel and view of the world as it is then um, that he would include, you know, social upheaval. Um, that's a hard thing to do. But I don't think he does himself any favors with how he films it. You know, you know when um, uh, when the main character when the main character is going out into the street, you know, and I just felt like there was a way that the camera is just kind of panning or dollying left from right to left, and you know, I feel like there's a guy who's shooting, mm -hmm. and then it just it felt so mechanically in time to a certain beat, and even though I know that like the Pieta vision of the woman in the street holding uh, a wounded 
colleague, a comrade, that that's based on a photograph, mm -hmm. apparently. Um, just the way it rests on that, it just felt like, okay, we went for one thing, here's the next thing. And yeah. then I don't know if this is stuff that you felt when you saw yeah, it. Yeah, it is. And it's, yeah. I'm glad to hear you say it um, because I agree that I, I sort of feel like a, a grouch for <laughs> bringing it up. But it's, I think it's a film whose strengths also are weaknesses and, and depending on what light you're examining the film under and just sort of the the fact that you know the, the domestic interior shots are beautifully conceived beautifully executed the the intricacy of the design and and the sort of organic truthfulness of the way that this interior is constructed and the very deliberate way that it's shot that is sweeping and sort of grandiose in a way that I thought was intended to sort of dignify the role of a domestic worker within that domestic space and mm -hmm. elevate her work as noble and her, her sort of domain as a noble one. Mm -hmm. And I, I understand sort of what the purpose of the aesthetic was, but I also think that for a film that is trying to humanize a member of a class that was not the same as the class that the filmmaker occupied, even though he lived in close quarters with her and she was an intimate part of his family and a part of his life and, and an important figure in his life, she still ends up not fully fleshed out, I think, in the mm -hmm. film. And part of the result of that is the bravura of the construction and sort of the, the extent to which you see the artist's hand in, look how I'm displaying this material and isn't it impressive and and it, it is impressive and it's beautiful and it's you know a lot of praise has been deservedly given to the the actress uh Yalitza Aparizio who plays the lead um but I just I don't know there there I feel that there's a hole at the middle of this movie and I don't quite it's not quite satisfying yeah that also kind of brings me to, to something at the end of the movie, which is I just, I felt like it was sort of trying to achieve this kind of group portrait at the end that I, I didn't feel wasn't entirely earned because, you know, as you said, it's, they're definitely different kind of class spaces being occupied. And, and I just, I felt like the movie wasn't entirely acknowledging that they're still in very different spaces. Right. Um, and that's not erased. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's a luxury to be able to have a movie like this to complain about. Right. Right. <laughs> and it's a beautiful work of art. And yeah. Certainly yeah. worthy of appreciation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, those, I mean, those are probably the two biggest films. I'm, of course, Shoplifters is yes. also out and showing here at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Um, but I, I, I don't know that we need to talk too much more about that because we've actually just had a Families on Film podcast where you can hear uh, Elisa Ma and Michael Koreski and many, many others talking about films, including Shoplifters. Uh, and Elisa also wrote a great article about Shoplifters, shoplifters for our new issue. Uh, so Shoplifters, we wish you well. I don't know if there are any other films in new release that we could talk about. I think that's probably it for now. Seems like a, a good selection. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, people's month, this is the time of the year, I feel like since the beginning of like a chapter in Pride and Prejudice, but <laughs> it's a time of the year when critics' minds turn to uh, numbers and, and rankings. And 
I, I don't want to do any of that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad just to talk about a, a film like The Favorite and a film like Roma uh, without having to, to put one in front of the other. That said, you will find my rankings <laughs> in the next issue. Um, but I think that probably wraps up. But I, I do want to ask, what's what's another like new release that you've seen um, relatively recently that kind of caught your eye in some way or something you caught up with maybe? Yeah, well, over the holiday weekend, uh, I was with family and I saw... One very new release, uh, Widows, which was a lot of fun. Uh, yes. It, it was, it's a great one to go to with your adult family members. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> why, why was that? It's just, I mean, it's a heist film. Okay, yeah, and sure. Always fun for the family. <laughs> yeah, and, it, you know, that, that can sort of uh, appeal to a wide demographic mm-hmm. range. And it's, you know, just extremely entertaining. And I think it's a, it's a surefire winner. Yeah. Uh, for for viewing with not necessarily um, cinephile family members, but uh-huh. <laughs> you know, if you if you need a reason to go out to the movies, yeah, there's just also always a certain amount of programming that goes on at home, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, that everyone does, I guess, trying to find a, a movie for everyone to see. That's that's kind of the Thanksgiving right. miracle. That I mean, that there's another movie where, like, who watching Hunger. <laughs> right, or twelve years a slave, <laughs> or twelve years a slave. Um, I guess, yeah. I mean, who would have who would have thought that you'd have uh, widows? Uh, although, as many people have made the argument, and 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 I think even in in a short review in, in our current issue, um, it is a movie that has a number of you know very intricately plotted out sequences and a kind of real sense of of the socioeconomic like geography. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in addition to the reliable pleasures of of the heist. Yes. teamwork and that sort of thing. All right. Well, I think that brings us uh, to the end of this latest uh, rep report. We'll be back once we've seen enough movies to talk <laughs> about. Uh, but, but Maddie, thank you very much. Oh, thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Film Comment Podcast with music by Greg Einge. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comet. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle.